Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 today. Romans chapter 12, we're continuing our series in Experiencing God. We're in the place where we're talking about God's will and the church, the body of Christ, the people of God. I love what Bill Hull says about the church. He says this, God's genius has been to throw together a hodgepodge of called out believers and require them to love one another and do the impossible together. Think about that. God brings this group, this hodgepodge, this group of people from different backgrounds, different places in their life, and then says, I want you to love one another and accomplish great things as I live my life through you. That's what God says about us. In Romans chapter 12, there's a a picture of the body of Christ, this analogy. I'd like us to to read just a few verses beginning in verse 3. Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not all have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. We looked at that last week, and we talked about how important it is that we belong together to one another, and that there's a phrase that's used to describe that kind of fellowship in the Bible. It's translated from the Greek, the word koinonia, that's used often. It just means basically this intimate fellowship, this partnership that we have with God. It's based on our love relationship with God, this intimate fellowship with Him, and it's manifested as we have intimate fellowship with one another. Years ago, somebody somebody reminded me or showed me that the, the cross is a perfect picture of this, the church. You have the, the relationship with God, this, this vertical. My relationship with God is essential. I have to be in intimate fellowship with Him. And then you look at the cross members of the cross, and you think about the horizontal aspect to the Christian faith. That is that I am to live in, a, in an intimate love relationship with the people in the family of God. So I have to be right with God this way, and I need to be right with others, others that way, in right relationship. Well, I've listed several characteristics here, could have gone on and on and on, but I stopped at six. You'll be glad. About what happens when a, when a church is really genuinely committed purposefully committed to genuine intimate fellowship. First of all, the church that's committed to genuine fellowship is characterized by love. Now what I've done is gone through the New Testament, just taken some statements that that are made about the church and the people of God, and we're going to look at those and, and apply those to us today. The church is to be characterized by love. In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus said, I give you a new commandment, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. And verse 35 says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Did you catch that? By this, the way that the watching world will know that we are followers of Christ is not our programming, it's not our signage, it's not our website, It's not what we say, it's not how great we sing, it is our love for one another. The way the watching world will know that we are followers of Christ, clearly, in John chapter 13, 
It is our love for one another. Look with me at 1 John chapter 4. As in John writes about love in chapter 4, 1 John, toward the end of your Bible, as you get close to the book of Revelation, you'll find 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John there. 1 John chapter 4, listen to verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Look at verse 11 in that same passage. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. Look at verse 19. Again, John says it this way. We love because he first loved us. You want to memorize a verse of scripture other than John 3, 16? Take 1 John 4, 19. We love one another because he first loved us. It's stated this way. We are to love one another because he first loved us. Does that make sense? Because he loved me, there's a mandate, there's a command, there's, a, there's a, 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 a powerful message on my life that I'm to love others. If anyone says, look at verse 20, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother, has, who he has seen, cannot love the God he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother. You know what John says here? He says, if you're not loving other believers in the body of Christ, you better check your relationship with God. That's Kevin's paraphrase of that. John says a little bit stronger. He says, you're a liar if you say you know God and you can't love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That great passage on love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we won't read the whole passage of Scripture, but it's the love chapter. Just beginning in verse 4, listen to these traits, these, these characteristics of love manifestations of love verse 4 love is patient love is kind love does not envy is not boastful is not conceited does not act improperly is not selfish is not provoked and does not keep a record of wrongs love finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in truth it bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things love never ends. Let me, let me let you know what the scripture is saying here. Those of us who are Christ followers will love one another this way. Love is not some abstract out there. It is a, it is a life commitment of the follower of Christ to love one another. When John says in John uh, that we're, we're to love one another, this is the way the world will know that you're my disciples. And then Paul writes it this way. This is what that love should look like. Boy, go through that list. Patient, kind, not envy, not boastful, not conceited, not selfish, not keeping a record of wrongs. Bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's the description of this first point. Our, our church, if we're to be committed to genuine fellowship, we will be characterized by that kind of love. I love the story Jonathan Falwell tells of his father, Jerry Falwell, who is pastor of the, the church in Lynchburg, Virginia, Thomas Road, right? Thomas Road Baptist Church. He had been invited to Florida to debate uh, Larry Flint. Is that his name? The, the publisher of Hustler Magazine. And he's down there doing this debate with Flint about values and morals and all that stuff. And after the debate, Flint asked if he could get a ride back to Lynchburg with Falwell. 
So Jonathan is, uh, is watching his dad respond, and Falwell says, sure. So they begin this, this trip back to, to Lynchburg, and all along the way, Jonathan is watching his father, this preacher of the gospel who stands for truth and morals and, and, and righteousness and holiness, have a conversation with Larry Flint, the producer of Hustler Magazine, one of the biggest pornography launching deals back in that day. And, as, and he, it went, they talked about everything from life and sports and politics and everything. And when he was done, Jonathan asked his dad when he left, he said, Dad, I don't understand it. You were just down there debating him. He stands for everything you preach against. He, he is totally opposite to you, Dad. And Jerry Falwell said, well, son, you need to understand. He said, there's going to come a time in Larry's life where he's going to be broken and he's going to need a friend. And he's going to call on a friend. He said, I want to leave the door open for that phone call. I thought, that's a picture of a, a believer loving an unbeliever. Put, put a believer in that place. Shouldn't we treat each other that same way? Where we're not keeping record of wrongs? Where we're not going to say to that person, I can't talk to you because X, Y, Z in your life? There needs to be this love, this openness. Our fellowship needs to be characterized by love. So I want to ask you a question, or ask you to ask yourself a question. Are my relationships in my church family based on God's love? Are they based on performance? You know what the difference is? Love based on performance is if you treat me nice, I'll love you. If you don't say bad things about me, I'll love you. If you take care of me and pat me on the back, I'll love you. No, my love Ask yourself this question, is my love for one another, others in the body of Christ, based on the love of God only? Another question for you to ask yourself, am I keeping a record of wrongs with others in the body of Christ? Am I patient with others in my church family? Just take 1 Corinthians 13 and ask yourself question after question about that. Number one, a church committed to genuine fellowship is characterized by love. Number two, a church committed to genuine fellowship considers others first. We'll consider others first. Back in Romans chapter 12, Paul says this, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Don't think of yourself more highly than you should think. I think about the, the, the life of Mother Teresa of Calcutta and how she did that. She went to the, to the poorest of the poor. She felt God had called her to the poorest of the poor, and she treated them with dignity. My niece has just started a ministry where she goes in the, the streets of Dallas-Fort Worth and ministers to homeless people and gives them haircuts and cleans them up, and she says they deserve honor and dignity. That, that's what we're to do. We're to, to look at others and consider others first. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24, each one should not seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Ephesians chapter 5, 21 says this, we are to submit to one another in the fear of Christ. That doesn't mean I'm afraid of Jesus because he's gonna get me, but fear of Christ means reverence and worship of him. Because I'm worshiping him, I'm to submit to others in the body of Christ. I think about Jesus' example washing the disciples' feet. Remember there as he brought them together before he went to the garden and he took a towel and a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and they were freaked out by that and they wanted, they wanted to wash his feet. And, and, and here's what he says finally as he wraps that up. He says, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. John chapter 13, if you want to go back and read that passage. Here's what Jesus is saying. You need to be willing to wash the feet of your other brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those that you might not think deserve it. 
Consider others first. Someone said, I think it was Stephen Covey, when you're in a relationship and you're talking to someone, seek first to understand, then to be understood. It's a great, great principle. We're usually the other way around, aren't we? First thing I want in a conversation is I want you to know, I want you to know how I feel about this. I want you to know my opinion, my place, my whatever. And instead, we're to do this, put others first, say, I need to know where your heart is. When you're sharing Christ with a lost person, instead of just battering them with the gospel, take a minute to get to know them and find out where they are as a person. When you're in a conversation with someone in the body of Christ, don't make it all about you. Make it about them. Consider others more important than yourself. Consider others first. Again, ask yourself this question, am I putting others first? Am I putting others first? The third characteristic of a church that's committed to genuine fellowship is church will not be critical of the weaknesses and faults of others. Will not be critical with the weaknesses and faults of others. Look with me at Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Accept anyone who is weak in the faith, but don't argue about doubtful issues. Accept those who are weak in the faith. Somebody who's not as mature as you are, someone who's struggling more than you are, someone who may not have known the Lord as long as you do, maybe somebody who's a baby Christian, maybe somebody who's in a place of struggle. Accept them. Look on down at, with, with me at, at verse 12. Each one of us must give an account of, of himself to God. Therefore, let us no longer criticize one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in a brother's way. Here's what Paul says. I'm to no longer be critical of you. You're no, to no longer be critical of me as members of the body of Christ. I'm a pastor, and so it seems to come with the, the territory that you're going to be criticized by people. I was told when I first made the commitment to go in the ministry, you need to have thick skin. Uh, I've found that to be the case. Criticism. Tom Vanderbilt has written a book called Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do. I love it. And here, he gives this analogy. It's really about life and not just driving. He says, whenever we, we come to a, we see a stop sign and, and we stop our car, it's because we were looking for a stop sign. Have you found that to be the case when you drive up to an intersection? What are you looking for? What am I supposed to do here? Do I go? Do I stop? Do I yield? We're looking for the stop sign. So he says, people see the stop sign because that's what they're looking for when they get to an intersection. Think about that, uh, that analogy as you think about what you look for in a church. Are you looking for something to say about the sermon or about the choir or about the worship team or about the lights or about the temperature or about the carpet or about the seats or about the fill in the blank? Are you coming to church looking for what God wants to say, what God wants to do? Like Andy was saying, this expectancy that God is going to meet with us. I love the story Jim Wilson tells. He points back to the, the nursery rhyme. I don't remember the nursery rhyme, but it's about the, the cat that went to London to see the queen. Does anybody know that nursery rhyme? And, and what the cat saw was a mouse under a chair. You know why? Because the cat went to London looking for mice because that's what cats do. Do you show up on Sunday morning looking to see the king of kings? Or are you looking for mice? Something you can be critical of. Something you can say, I wish they'd have done it that way. I bet this week they're going to do that again. I never liked that. 
I bet this week she's going to say what she always says. Always gets under my skin. I bet she says it again this week. I bet that pastor is going to do what he always does. Do you know that we had a man in our congregation that counted the number of times I put my hands in my pockets? He said, Pastor, I was trained that when you're doing public speaking, you never put your hands in your pockets. I said, well. So I put my hands in my pockets to show that I'm relaxed. That's what that's about. He counted the number of times. What are you, what are you looking for? Tell you what, you'll find it. If you're looking for me to mess up, you'll find it. If you're looking for the choir to mess up, you'll find it. If you're looking for the worship team to mess up, you'll find it. If you're looking for a children's worker to mess up, you'll find it. But if you show up looking for the king of kings, with your eyes, your heart, every part of your being focused on him, you find him if that's what you're looking for. I love the story of the monk who went to this monastery and he was only allowed to say one, one sentence a year. So he went, spent his year, he came before the head monk at the end of the year and the, the head monk said, you can speak now. He said, bed hard. Those are his two words, bed hard. He went back to his bed, he did another year. Came back, he had his two words at the end of that year. He walks into the head monk's office and he says, food cold. Turned around, went back. Lived another year in seclusion in this monastery. He comes at the end of the third year, walks into the head monk's office and he says, I quit. <laughs> and the head monk said this, it's no wonder, all you've done is complain since you got here. If you could only say two words to sum up your Sunday or one sentence, would it be something critical? It was hot in there. It was cold in there. Really? Ask yourself this question. Do I have a critical spirit? Am I looking for mice under the chair? Or am I looking for the king? Number four, the church that's committed to genuine fellowship is careful to speak the truth in love. Careful to speak the truth in love. I chose that word careful carefully, not just because it started with a C. But I want us to be careful that we speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, let us grow up to him in every way who is the head, Christ. Some people say, well, I love to speak the truth. I love to tell it like it is. I'm, I'm outspoken, and everybody knows it. You know where I stand. Yeah, but is it in love? In verse 25 in Ephesians 4, Paul writes, put away lying and speak the truth to his neighbor. Because we are members of one another. Remember I said last week, you're related to each other in here? We are members of one another. I haven't watched it in years, but American Idol in the early days, I think they've been through umpteen coaches and judges and stuff, but you had those three coaches on American Idol. You had these three character traits. You had someone who was aggressive and assertive and passive. You had, the, you had Simon Cowell who was always aggressive, right? 
Man, he spoke the truth and there was not much grace in his speech. Then you had Paula Abdul and she was kind of the one that was gracious and she kind of avoided the truth. And then you had Randy. And he seemed to always be gracious when he spoke the truth. Go back and look at some of those episodes on YouTube. We need to be more like Randy. When a person's solo is terrible and everybody knows it, and you get the responsibility to tell them, I'm not saying solo, this is a metaphor, okay? All right, please, don't. But when there's something in someone's life and it's out of line and, and you feel prompted by God to come in and come alongside them, listen, because you have a relationship with them, the relationship needs to precede the admonition. You come alongside them to speak the truth in love like, like Randy would do. What is Randy's last name? Jackson? Is that right? Thank you, Andy, for paying attention. I appreciate that. <laughs> Be like Randy. Ask yourself this question. Is, is my speech gracious and truthful? We have a tendency in the body of Christ just to be gracious and we leave out the truth and it's hurtful. We have a tendency to speak the truth and leave out the grace and it's hurtful. Paul said it this way in Colossians, let your speech be with grace seasoned with salt. Gracious yet truthful. Number five, a church that's committed to genuine fellowship commends wholesome speech that builds others up. A church that's committed to this genuine quantity of this fellowship, this intimate fellowship with God and with one another, will commend wholesome speech that builds others up. Ephesians 4.29, no foul language is to come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. I love the NIV translation. I like it better. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. When we hear filthy language, we think, oh, that just means I'm not supposed to talk dirty. But the context of that passage in the, in the original language is let no talk that's not uplifting and wholesome come out of your mouth. Do you ever say, I probably shouldn't say this, but? <laughs> Guess what? Don't. It's probably very nice. I probably shouldn't say it. Then don't. Just check yourself. Is what I am about to say going to be helpful and beneficial? And building up, uplifting. Max Lucado tells a story about when he was running a half Ironman. I didn't know there was such a thing. But in, in a half Ironman, you only swim 1.2 miles. You run 56, I mean, you have a 56-mile bike ride. And then your run is not a full marathon. It's just 13.1 miles. Well, he's running along and he's tired. It's his first one. And this guy jogs up next to him. And he asks the guy how he's doing. And the guy says, this stinks. Now, mind you, he's just swam this incredible distance, ridden this distance on a bike, and now he's running this half marathon to finish things up. He says, how are you? And the guy says, this stinks. This race is the dumbest decision I've ever made. He said the guy had more complaints than somebody with the IRS. He said after he ran along with that guy for a little while, he decided, I need to get away from this guy. And he let the guy move on. He passed him or left him behind, whatever. And he ran up alongside a 66-year-old grandmother. He said her tone was just opposite. She said to him, you'll finish this. It's hot, but at least it's not raining. Just take one step at a time. Don't forget to hydrate. You can do this. And he said, guess which one put a little bit of a lift in his step? 
Then Lucado goes on to say, which one do you want to be alongside while you run the race? The guy that reminds you of everything that's not right? Or the person that reminds you, you can do this? Let your speech be uplifting. That's that word edification, edifying, building others up. Look with me at James chapter 3. I just want to read a little bit, just a few verses, 1 through 6, of what James says about our speech. This is a whole sermon, but we're not going to do the whole sermon here. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in many ways, in what he says, he is a mature man who is able to control his whole body. Now, when, it put, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we also guide the whole animal. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites. And the tongue is a fire, a tongue, a world of unrighteousness is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body. It sets the course of life on fire, and it is set on fire by hell. James is pointing out the negative of what happens when we let our speech be unwholesome, when we let our speech be nothing but gossip. I love Joe Stoll's definition of gossip. He says it's idle chatter that can injure another person's integrity or reputation. Idle chatter that can hurt another person's integrity or reputation. If you ask yourself, will this build that person up? Maybe I'm talking to someone or about someone. If it won't, maybe you just need to zip it. Just say, I don't need to say it. Be careful. Let your speech be wholesome, not unwholesome. Heard a story about a lady named Mildred. She was a church gossip. She had something to say about everybody. One day she saw Frank's pickup truck parked in front of a, a local bar, nightclub. And she began to tell everybody in church, I saw Frank's truck in front of that nightclub. We all know what he was doing in there. It's not right. And she just spread the word out there. She even confronted Frank. She said, Frank, I saw your pickup truck in front of that nightclub and I know what you were doing there. He didn't say a word in defense. He just looked at her and he turned around and walked away. No response. But he went and got in his pickup truck that night. He took and he parked in front of Mildred's house. (laughs) Turned it off and walked home. Whatever it takes for the Holy Spirit to check you, right? Whatever it takes to show you, be careful what you say. How many stories and analogies are there about how you can't take something back? A church that's committed to genuine fellowship is going to have wholesome speech that builds others up. And number six, a church that's committed to genuine fellowship. By the way, ask yourself that question. I asked the question yet. Is my speech edifying? Is my speech wholesome? Does my speech build others up? Number six, a church that's committed to genuine fellowship is committed to forgiveness. 
I save the best for last. I think I save the most difficult for last because so many of us struggle at this point. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. After Paul says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Verse 31, all bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting and slander must be removed from you along with malice. Be kind, compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Can I paraphrase this? Jesus forgave you. You need to forgive others. Have you noticed that we are much more lenient with ourselves than we are with other people? Have you noticed that? And we may be to the point where we realize that I've been forgiven much, thank you, Lord, and we may even thank him for that every day, but then we don't demonstrate that same forgiveness to others. Paul wrote in Colossians 3, 13 and 14, accepting one another and forgiving one another. If a person has a complaint against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Above all, put on the perfect bond of unity. Forgiveness. Remember I started with the the picture of the cross. My relationship with my heavenly father is to be an intimate love relationship as he lives his life in me and through me by the person of the Holy Spirit. And my relationships with one another need to be right this way. If you're not right this way, you need to check this way. If you're having trouble forgiving others, go back to the cross. Listen, that's the statement of the love of God. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And walk in that forgiveness, that intimate love relationship that God has for us in Christ. So much could be said about this. When you choose not to forgive another person, you think you're holding them hostage. I'm not forgiving them. You know who's being held hostage? You are. Someone said unforgiveness and bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. I'll plead with you for your own spiritual and emotional health. Forgive one another. Maybe it's someone in this church has said or done something. Forgive them. It may not have been the right thing. When you forgive someone, it doesn't mean necessarily, it doesn't mean that, they, that you let them off the hook and that they, they've done no wrong. They stand before God and account for whatever that is, but you need to release yourself from that. Some people say, well, I can't forgive them because it would be, it would be acknowledging what they did was okay. No, it doesn't. It just says you're not going to hold on to it anymore. That's what forgiveness is. Can you ask yourself this question? Am I harboring resentment or bitterness toward another member of this church body? Is there unforgiveness in my heart? Is there someone I need to seek and ask forgiveness? God's will for the church is that we be committed to genuine fellowship, and those six things should be characterized by our lives. 
I love the story about a building at MIT. It was known as Building 20. It was built in a haphazard way around World War II to try and be a, a, a temporary shelter for their faculty and their teaching, and uh, it be, ultimately became an overflow for other uh, departments. And this building, Building 20, became one of those places after the war where engineers and scientists were drawn back to that school or drawn to that school where they needed a place, so they put them in Building 20. And it was one of those places where it was just, everything was in flux. They moved walls all the time. Nothing was permanent. People walked around everywhere from, from department to department. Scientists shared that space with a, a piano tuning uh, company. There was a uh, just every, every imaginable group of scientists and engineers and other tradespeople were in building number 20. There was a machine shop there, nuclear scientists, and all in between. And a lot of incredible things happened in building 20, and people that look back at that, by the way, they've torn it down now and built another building. But here's the story that they said that so many incredible discoveries were made because people from one, one field, one discipline, would interact with people from another discipline just in a haphazard way as they crossed paths, as they came to see and talk to one another. And the picture is that the church is like a building 20. People from different backgrounds and different understanding and different uh, philosophies, different everything different, are thrown together in this, this building, the household of God, and we get to interact with one another, and incredible things can happen when we let God's Holy Spirit work in us and through us. Let's be the church that's committed to genuine fellowship. Pray with me.